devotional elements of it. We do Advent devotionals every year. I just feel um, very much engaged spiritually this time of year. Um, in the Word every day, we're doing devotionals with the kids every night. We've got a nice little Advent calendar that's got a, a card for a, um, each card has a name of Jesus on it. Uh, it's just a really special time of year for me. Spiritually, I just really come alive during Advent season. Advent season is a time of waiting. It's not the kind of waiting that all of our kids are doing right now, waiting for Christmas morning to open the presents, to come downstairs and see what's under the tree for them. The people of God awaiting their Messiah, their God with us, their promised deliverer is not like that. It's a long and a difficult waiting when Jesus came, he came as a light into a very dark world. So Advent waiting is more like a criminal on death row awaiting a pardon, longing for freedom from guilt and punishment. Advent waiting is more like a slave awaiting a liberator, dehumanized and longing for agency. Advent waiting is more like an oppressed people awaiting justice, worn down, and longing for things to be made right. It's more like a refugee longing for home. Think about the Afghan refugees that were placed here in Indiana. Many of them just desperate for things to be right back home so they can go back home and live their lives. Advent waiting is more like a father with a starving family in a famine waiting for the rains. Like a destitute widow awaiting a redeemer. If that doesn't resonate with you, if you can't uh, empathize with any of those characters, you may not be spending enough time with the people of Jesus. So we'll do some work this morning to really understand what it means to wait. Wait from a place of darkness and despair. But Advent waiting is also an expectant waiting. God's people are not waiting for something that may or may not happen. They're waiting for a Redeemer that was promised by God. So we're going to experience a little bit of that waiting this morning through the story of Ruth, her mother-in-law, Naomi. See what it means to wait under the wings of God. To wait under his care and protection and provision, under his rule and his reign. All right, before we get into Ruth, I want to set a little background. Actually, quite a bit of background. Uh, Ruth is, comes pretty early in the Old Testament. It's right after a book called Judges which I'm assuming is pretty unfamiliar territory to most of us. So what I want to do is just do a run-through, basically from Genesis up to Judges, to set the context, because it's really important context for this story. So the story of Ruth and Naomi takes place in the Promised Land. But unless when you think of the Promised Land, you think of a post-apocalyptic wasteland, it's not the Promised Land you might be expecting. The book opens with these words, In the days when the judges ruled... So this is a specific time in the period of the history of God's people, Israel. These were dark days. So understanding this context is super important to this story. But I also want to highlight a thread that starts in Genesis, runs up through Ruth all the way into the New Testament and into Revelation that connects the story of Ruth to the overall narrative of the Bible. And here's the thread. God has promised to restore what we lost in Eden. And he's going to do it through a family line, through a son, a savior king. And so the life of a Christian is a life of expectant waiting. All right, so we're going to 
just do a quick sprint through the beginning of the Old Testament to get up to Judges. So starting with Genesis, out of an overflow of God's glory, he creates man in his image. God placed his image in Adam and Eve and put them in this big, beautiful, amazing, complex universe that he spoke into existence to image forth his likeness. God put his image in Adam and Eve to show the world what God is like. And he put them in a garden with everything that they would need to thrive. They enjoyed perfect fellowship with one another, perfect fellowship with God. And they lived happily ever after the end. <laughs> no, we know that's not the case. Tempted by the serpent, Adam and Eve turn their back on paradise and step out into the cold, dark world. They had broken fellowship with God, broken fellowship with one another, and God banished them from the garden. Jesus came as a light in the darkness. What we lost in Eden is unimaginable. But God promised a way back in Genesis 3. What a powerful phrase, but God. Adam and Eve had walked away from paradise, but God promised a way back. Everything that happens from that point in Genesis 3 is purely the grace and mercy of God. So God made a promise that he didn't have to make. He made a promise he could not break, that he would send a savior. The serpent would bruise his heel, but he would bruise the head of the serpent, and there would be a way back to Eden. It's impossible to overstate the glory of that promise, the depths of the darkness that Adam and Eve walked into when they left Eden, in the height of the glory of the promise of God that at great cost to himself, he would make a way back. So from Genesis 3 begins the expectant waiting of the people of God. What follows is a cycle of downward spirals, God covenanting with his people, telling them that he would be their God, that they could be blessed and thrive by living according to his rules, and each time God's people going astray. They're waiting expectantly for God to restore what was lost in Eden. These blessings show up in two specific ways in this thread. Children and land. So God has promised to send them a savior. So his blessings show up in the form of children. And he's restoring what was lost in Eden. So he's promising them a land. So skip ahead to Genesis 15. And God makes this promise to Abraham. He promises him a land and a family. Now Abraham and Sarah were old. They didn't believe that God could do it. Sarah laughed at the promise. And she even tried to force it to happen by having Abraham sleep with her servant, Hagar. That's actually a common theme throughout this story. God's people waiting, but oftentimes trying to take matters into their own hands. So God gives Abraham and Sarah Isaac, and then he gives Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. And he makes a similar promise to Jacob, offspring in a land where they can dwell and be the people of God. Could this be the restoration of Eden? Jacob would go on to have 12 sons that would become the 12 tribes of Israel. So now we're in the book of Exodus. They end up in Egypt as slaves in Egypt for 400 years, waiting for a deliverer. God promises a deliverer and sends them Moses. And Moses leads his people out of slavery in Egypt through amazing miracles and judgments of God. And he leads them to the land that God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
After wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, again waiting, Moses leads them up to the promised land and then transfers leadership to Joshua. So now we're in the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is the story of God removing the people from the promised land that were there to make a way for his people to dwell in the promised land. So stories like uh, the story of Jericho, where God's people don't even fight. They just march around the city like God commands them to do. And when they're done marching, the walls of the city fall, and they're able to take Jericho. God delivering the promised land to his people. The book of Joshua closes with this exhortation from Joshua to the people. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God has delivered the promised land to us. Don't screw it up. It's another opportunity for God's people to have restored what was lost in Eden. This brings us to the book of Judges. Any guesses on how that went? So God's people are now in the promised land, the land that he had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. He delivered them through 40 years wandering in the desert, and they're now home. The book of Judges describes, uh, again, a downward spiral as these tribal leaders, the judges over Israel, fall into deeper and deeper corruption and look more and more like the people that they had displaced in the land. And the book ends with the whole people of Israel falling into this corruption. It's a devastating book. It's a violent book. It is a long, dark night. Here's the last verse of the book of Judges, the book right before Ruth. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They had lost Eden. So this is the setting for the book of Ruth. Go ahead and turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. I've got it marked here in my daughter's Bible with a cool bird on the front. <laughs> Our oldest daughter is actually named Ruthie. Several times in my notes, I definitely typed Ruthie instead of Ruth. Okay, so we're looking for this thread of God restoring what was lost in Eden and God's people waiting, waiting, waiting for that restoration. So let me read, uh, I'm going to read chapter 1 and then just kind of tell the rest of the story. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab 
that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and, lifted, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, may become, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do, do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Okay, so it is a dark time in the history of God's people, Israel, in the land that he had promised to them. There's a famine in the land, and Elimelech's family is facing starvation. So he takes his family and leaves and takes them into Moab, in search of a better future. But shortly after they arrive, Elimelech dies. After 10 years in Moab, both his sons die and leave his wife and their now daughters-in-law destitute. 10 years waiting in Moab for deliverance from this famine. The situation has gone from bad to worse. At least in Bethlehem, Naomi had hope of, with her husband of a future generation. So they return to Bethlehem, completely poor and destitute. And Naomi sends Ruth to glean. So she sends her out into the field where they're harvesting the barley to basically just pick up the remnants that the, that the harvesters leave behind so that they would have something to eat. She ends up, Ruth ends up in the field of a man named Boaz. He lets her glean and he keeps an eye out for her. He's actually really generous towards Ruth. Let me read to you from chapter 2 about their encounter. This is verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, 
but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So Ruth has found protection and provision and comfort under the wings of God. But there's more. There's always more blessings from God. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer in the family of Elimelech. So a kinsman redeemer was essentially, uh, in God's law, he wrote that if a man should leave a widow, that his brother or near of kin should redeem her so that she would have hope of a future and would have support. So Boaz is a kinsman redeemer in the family of Elimelech. And Ruth just happened upon his field when she was gleaning. So because Boaz loves God's law, he accepts his responsibility to redeem Ruth. But before he does, there's actually a closer redeemer. And so he first goes to this man and he says, uh, it's our responsibility as Israelites, as people of God, to redeem this, this woman, Naomi, who's lost her husband in Moab. Do you want to redeem her and buy her land? And the man says, yeah, I'll extend my portfolio and acquire her land. Boaz says, okay, great. You should know that with the land comes a Moabite wife. And the man says, I would gladly take the land. I will have nothing to do with a Moabite. So the same day, Boaz signs the contract and redeems Ruth. And in redeeming Ruth, redeems Boaz. It's a beautiful story of grace and redemption. And it gives some great examples of what it means to wait under the wings of God. So I want to look at each of these four characters briefly and just look at how they waited. So first, Elimelech. Again, Elimelech is a father. He's got a family, and they're starving because there's a famine. It's dark outside of Eden. This is a tough position to be in. But he decides to leave the shelter of God's wing. He takes his family outside of the promised land into a land called Moab. Moab is about 50 miles outside of Bethlehem. And what's really ironic about this is it's actually the place where Moses led the Israelites up to the promised land and then died before they went into the promised land. So it's just outside the promised land. If you know the story of why Moses died there, um, I'll just tell it real quick in case you don't. Uh, Moses, when, when God's people were wandering in, uh, in the wilderness, having left Egypt, they complained that they were thirsty. And so God told Moses, Moses, gather the people and command this rock to give them water, and it'll give them water. So Moses gathered the people, and he struck the rock with his staff, and it gave water. And God said, because you did not do all that I commanded you, you will not enter the promised land. So this is the place that Elimelech takes his family. He leaves the promised land and takes them to this place, Moab, just outside. He walked away from being under the wings of God. Boaz then is a contrast to Elimelech. Boaz is also a Jew, but he chose to stay in the land that God had promised to them through the famine. And God blessed him. Throughout Ruth, we see these little details that 
demonstrate that Boaz loved God's law. It was God's law that an Israelite landowner should allow those in need to glean in their fields at harvest time. It was God's law that Israelites should care for the widow and the foreigner. It was God's law that a brother or a close kinsman should redeem the widow. And Boaz is careful to do this. Uh, in fact, he goes to the, the closer redeemer first. Just demonstrates his love for God's law and God's ways. And God blesses and blesses and blesses Boaz. And through Boaz, blesses Naomi and Ruth. Naomi then, in her waiting, is given over to despair and bitterness. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Now, certainly that was true. Naomi had a really rough go, and her feeling the way that she felt about it was perfectly valid. But though she may have felt abandoned by God, God was working in her waiting. She doesn't see it, and she doesn't cling to it like Ruth did. But God is working in her waiting. He has spread his wing over Naomi. She said, I went away full and I have come back empty. But that's not true. She went away empty and God brought her back full. Ruth then is a contrast to Naomi. Though her faith is an adopted faith, it's very much an alive faith. Naomi is very clear that a future with her in Bethlehem is no future at all. If Ruth were to follow Naomi back to Bethlehem, it would be a life of poverty and barrenness. There was, it was not a good life for a widow in this time, certainly not in Bethlehem in the middle of Judges. But Ruth, in faith, clings to Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Into poverty, into barrenness, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Even the hypocrites that reject the foreigner... I'll go. Your God will be my God. The God who brought the famine, I will go. And Ruth finds refuge under the wings of God. So we lost what we had in Eden, and that is a devastating reality. All of our suffering, all of our sorrow fall, flows out of Genesis 3. Life outside of Eden is dark and it's cold. It is a long, dark night. And Eden is not here. It's not in Canaan, the land that God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Eden is not America. Eden is not the metaverse. We cannot rebuild what we lost in Eden. But God, God has promised to restore what we lost, and only he can do it. That doesn't mean that we don't live like people who are of the kingdom of God and show what the kingdom of God is like here. But it does mean that we wait. God is doing it, and so we wait, longingly, expectantly. The point of this message is not be like Boaz and not like Elimelech, or be like Ruth and not like Naomi. We don't have to white-knuckle it to make things happen. We don't have to be given over to despair. God is doing it. He is working in our waiting. It does not mean that famine won't come, or that we won't have long seasons of wandering in the wilderness. But we help each other to cling to God in faith that we Christians wait under the wings of God. Read chapter 4, um, verse 13 here. This is the end of Ruth, starting in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, 
Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who was more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ten years married in Moab with no children. Ruth follows Naomi to Bethlehem, marries Boaz, and God gives them Obed. Obed, the grandfather of David, who would become the greatest king in Israel. Until he wasn't. And from whom the better king would come, the promised Messiah. Jesus coming in the flesh was the down payment. God has already paid the price to redeem us, and he will finish the work that he began at Jesus. We're waiting in the darkness, but the light of dawn has cracked over the horizon. This is not happy birthday, Jesus, on Christmas morning. This is joy to the world. Let earth receive her king. We sing, come thou long-expected Jesus. Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set your people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy, every longing heart. We share communion each week. If you've not yet gotten communion, now's your chance. To proclaim that Jesus' death has paid our debt. He's already paid the price. And he will come back to restore what was lost in Eden. And so we wait together under the wings of God. Let me pray. God, you are so good to us that though we turned our back on paradise, we broke fellowship with you and we walked away from Eden, that you promised a way. God, in that way would cost you your son. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy that follows in every single page of the Bible after Genesis 3 and in our lives here today, that though we wait and though it is a long, dark night, we wait under the wings of a God that loves us, that is caring for us, that is working in our waiting. God, I pray for those of us here, Soma downtown, that we would feel your presence, that we would believe ourselves to be under the wings of God, that you would help us to be a people that helps one another cling to that. Father, I pray over the rest of this Advent season, that we would spend time reflecting on what it means to wait under your wings. Jesus, we thank you that your body was broken for us on the cross and your blood was shed for us so that we could have a way back to Eden. You can take with me now the body of Jesus broken for us, his blood shed for us.